claims of Christ, the claims of Christ. We're coming at the tail end of a dialogue that Jesus had with a group of people, uh, and they, at the end of this dialogue, picked up, uh, well, they wanted to kill him, basically, verse 18 of chapter 5. This is why the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more, because not only he was breaking the Sabbath, but he's even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The conversation continues. That's where we pick up this morning. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help and trust that he'll give it. Father, we're thankful and we are eager to listen, not just with physical ears, but with spiritual ears. And Holy Spirit, we want to be, we want to be changed. We want to see your word with fresh lenses. Help me preach with clarity. Help me be faithful to what you have to say. And I trust that you're going to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. How about this? It's not a terribly long passage. I'm going to read the whole thing. And then we'll back up and, and we'll look specifically at verses 19 through 23. But you know what? First, uh, this sermon is going to be really practical for us in regards to evangelism. And it's good for us to familiarize ourselves with the claims of Christ. To come back to them, to remember them, to consider them again afresh and anew. Because it's the claims of Christ that drive people, as we saw last week to respond, either with hatred or belief. But if we are familiar with the claims of Christ and we offer those to people evangelistically, it leads people to a decision point, a point to where they accept it or they reject it. These claims are not claims that can just be listened to and not responded to. If they're rightly understood, they simply have to be accepted or rejected. So as we consider these claims today, I think... It will, it will help us evangelistically. Um, specifically, we're going to explore the dynamics of the father and the son's relationship. And Jesus is going to make some staggering claims about his relationship with his heavenly father. Staggering. So let's read it and then we'll, that we'll get in verses 19 through, through 23. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and it's now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come out. Those who have done good to resurrection life, 
and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. I want to look this morning at five specific claims in verses 19 through 23. And in claim two, we're going to have some subclaims. So there's multiple things that Jesus claims in this second tier claim here. But we're going to look at five specific claims that Jesus made down through verse 19 through 23. The first claim that Jesus makes is in, in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only that which he sees his Father doing. Now, here's what I want you to try to do this morning. I want us to try the best that we possibly can to imagine ourselves as a first century Jewish man or woman or child. And you're hearing this man, Jesus. You've heard about the things that he's done. You've heard about the miracles, the signs. There have been three of them already. The turning the water into wine and then the healing of the man who had been sick, lame for 38 years. And then the healing of the, well, help me out here. Um, what was it? The official son. Yeah, in the healing of the official son. Okay, so three of the seven signs up to this point have happened, and rumors and word has begun to spread about this Jesus, and Jesus is teaching with authority. He's different than the other scribes, the other Pharisees. But I want you to imagine these words coming out of Jesus' mouth as if you were just sitting there or standing there hearing him speak. So we got to try to imagine ourselves as not being believers yet, not actually knowing who Jesus is, who he isn't. Is he just a madman or is he truly who he says he is? And so if you can just put yourself there and listen in, what do you think about this guy? The first claim that he makes is that he is completely dependent upon his heavenly father. He actually says he only does what he sees his father doing. His mouth is moving, the words are coming out, and it's different from anything else that you've heard before. This man claims that he only does what he sees his heavenly father doing, that he is completely dependent upon his heavenly father. Now, the Pharisees may have said something like, I'm dependent upon Yahweh, but they wouldn't have called, called God their heavenly father, and they certainly wouldn't have said that they only do what they see him doing. This would have been audacious for them to hear. It would have been somewhat scandalous. Note, although Jesus is equal with God, he submits to the Father's leading activity. He is identifying what the Father would have him do in every single moment, every single day. Yes, Father. Yes, Father. Yes, Father. Living in complete dependence upon him. Now, this is interesting because Jesus' submission is powerful. This is the irony of Christian submission. Most people think in our world today that submission is very, very passive. And here's the truth. Everyone in this room has to submit to somebody. And if you're a member of this church or a member of a church somewhere else, or if you have Christians that you're in community with, okay, you submit to one another. That's what Ephesians chapter 5 calls us to. We submit to one another out of love for Christ. You submit to bosses, you submit to the law, you submit to whatever authorities are over you, and you have people who have to submit to you. And more times than not, when we think about the word submission, we think of passivity. But Jesus is actively submissive. And I want you to notice the power of Jesus' submission, the dignity of it. 
It is no small thing to walk in his footsteps and say, God, help me to powerfully walk in humble submission. That is not a bad thing. And in our society, submission across the board is looked at as negative because you are the king or queen of your own life. How dare anyone impose or tell you anything? Or how dare anyone try to lead or even sacrificially serve you? But Jesus shows us something else. He shows us what active and powerful submission truly is. In fact, if it wasn't for Jesus' submission to his heavenly Father, we wouldn't be saved. Jesus' submission is so powerful that it changes us. It produces powerful effect. This is active, the active submission of Jesus. It's not passive, it's active. Jesus, although he is equal with God and does exactly what he sees his Father doing. So there isn't a difference here uh, in the sense of activity. Jesus is saying, I do exactly what my Father does. There is an equality there, but then there is also an order where Jesus willingly submits to his Heavenly Father, showing us the dignity of that submission. So claim one, Jesus claims to be dependent, ultimately dependent upon his heavenly father, and he claims that he only does what he sees his heavenly father doing. So you kind of reach in your ears, you get that earwax out, you kind of lean in a little bit. What's he saying? What's his, what's his name again? Bob. What's his name? I don't know if first century Jews were named Bob, but What's this guy saying again? What's this Jesus? Crowds are gathered around. Jesus is making these claims. How are you responding to claim one? Let's consider claim two. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Claim two. Jesus claims to be ultimately certain of his Father's love. Now, there's some subpoints here because he claims more than that in this verse. Jesus also claims to be unwavering in his confidence in the goodness of God, and he claims that his Father shows him all that he is doing, and then Jesus says, greater works than these will he do. Greater works than the miracles that he's already performed will Jesus do. Now, Adam and Eve failed miserably at this in the garden, and you and I do as well, because I want you to consider just the wonderful truth that is the certainty of the love of the Father. Jesus walked in an ultimate confidence that he was loved. My Father loves me. The Father loves the Son. And he shows the Son some things. Again, scandalous to call God his Father. And he says, I am certain of the love of I'm certain that I have this love from the Heavenly Father. Friends, this is what the world is searching after, a love that won't go away, that will chase us down, that will stick with us, that will be with us, that will know everything about us. Jesus did what Adam and Eve failed to do and what you and I failed to do. He trusted in the goodness of his Heavenly Father. Adam and Eve doubted God's love and goodness. Jesus was fully convinced. My heavenly Father loves me. Now in a world of people who are, who are looking at these Pharisees and watching their religious activity, 
And they're seeing how good these Pharisees are. They have Bible verses hanging in front of their face. And they've got Bible verses dangling from their arms. They've got scriptures memorized. They, they know all the rituals that lead up to every sacrifice or every single feast that they're supposed to keep. They know all the things to do and not do. And, and you're a, a Jew here and you're looking, is there any hope to have God love me? Certainly God loves those Pharisees, but Jesus was confident. He knew that he was secure in his Father's love. Do you need to be reminded this morning the simple truth? James alluded to it. Oh, James just disappeared. I don't know where James went. But do you know that God loves you? He really does. The God of the universe doesn't just tolerate you. He knows the things that annoy other people about you. But he's just not annoyed by you. He really loves you. He likes you. I don't want to get too sentimental and weird here this morning, but he likes you. There's people in this world that don't like you. God does. He's confident that his father loves him. I want to be reminded of that. Greater works. What could be greater, Jesus, than the works that you've already done? Well, <laughs> glad that we ask Jesus this question. Because Jesus later would die in our place and he would be resurrected. And then he would actually ascend in the clouds. And the work that Jesus did in his death and resurrection are greater even than the wonderful miracles that he performed on those dusty streets in Jerusalem. Greater works will he do. We have to remember that the signs aren't the point. The signs point to the point. These seven signs that John curated for us in the Gospel of John are pointers to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the point. He is the Son of the living God. And we are called to believe in Him, and by believing in Him, have life in His name. That is the point. So claim two is that Jesus is certain, not hopeful. He is certain that God the Father loves him. And in Christ, by the way, we have that we can have that same humble confidence that the God of the universe loves me. It doesn't bring a swagger, it brings humility and simultaneously it brings confidence. God loves me. God loves me. And I can't take credit for that. He is just that loving. He is that gracious. It brings humble confidence. Claim 3, verse 21. Look there with me. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to all whom He will. Jesus claims to have authority over giving life to the dead. Again, I, I can't tell you. Are you there? Again, imagine these words coming out of Jesus' mouth. Imagine if I said that to you today. I have authority over your life, and I have authority to bring dead people alive, both physically and spiritually. I can make people be born again. If I said that, you should look at me and say, this is your last week, buddy, and kick me out of here. You really should. They're hearing this. Jesus talking with them, to them, making these claims. 
I have authority to raise the dead the same way my Father has authority to raise the dead. I have the same power as the God of the universe, Yahweh. Do you see why if we're familiar with these claims and if we offer these to people, Jesus actually claimed to be able to do what God does. He claimed to be God. That it puts people in the position to say, he's got to be more than just a moral teacher. He's got to be more than just a philosopher. He's got to be more than just some sort of intellectual guru. I referenced it last week, but C.S. Lewis really, it's just, it's insightful. He's crazy or he's God. And if we are familiar with that, he claims, I think we can see that. He is who he says he is or he is not. He claims to have life over the dead. God the Father has this authority over life and death. The power to heal, the, the power to give life, the power to kill. This is the God of the universe. And this would have been absolutely appalling. Only God has power over life and death. And Jesus is saying, me too. The earshot of this. Listening in. Claim 4, verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus keeps going. And he claims that the Father trusts him to judge everything and everyone. I mean, the crowd is swelling, right? Because Jesus is saying these things. There's people in the crowd that are really frustrated. There are people in the crowd that are inquiring to the truth or the lie of what Jesus is saying. And he's now before them, the one that's standing here is saying, I'm your judge and the judge of the entire, entire earth. Flesh and bone. Right in front of them. And saying, my father trusts me so much that he has given judgment to me and trusts me to judge everything and everyone. There is so much trust and unity within the Godhead. There isn't suspicion or vying for power between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There is this mutual giving, love, submission, trust in the Father, as, as we saw Friday, gives things to the Son and trusts the Son with that which He gives Him. Here, here's a bride. Here, here's judgment. I trust you. And Jesus is the judge. Now, keep in mind, we're told that he doesn't come into the world to condemn the world because the world is condemned already. The con condemnation that we hear about in John chapter 3 is different than this judgment. Jesus, King Jesus, is the judge and ruler of all. And he will execute right and true and just judgment. This man standing before them was, in fact, the eternal God of the universe, God the Son. And God the Father trusts the Son the one, this is ironic, this is an ironic twist. The one who would judge the world would be judged by the world. The humility in this is amazing. Jesus subjected himself to the judgment, the mockery, 
the hatred of this world. The benevolent one, King Jesus, the one who loves sinners, the one who is the judge of everyone, came to be judged by this world, and this world judged him a sinner. And killed their judge. Claim 5, verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Who what do you mean, Jesus? I've been honoring the Father my whole life. I've devoted my life to honoring Him. I have fastidiously walked the line, the straight and narrow. I have followed the law. I have poured energy, passion, not just the grit that's required to memorize the Bible, but I've put my heart into this thing. And you're sitting here telling me if I don't honor you, even though I am so genuine... I am really, genuinely, with all my heart, pursuing truth. And you're telling me it's not enough? I have to honor you? Friends, the problem in the world isn't lack of genuineness. There are people in the Islamic community, in the Hindu community, there are people in the atheistic community that are genuinely humanitarian. People who are in the religious world, genuinely trying passionately to love their little G, God. They're genuine. And there were religious leaders around him who had been following Yahweh, loving him. They thought, who were refusing to honor Jesus, and Jesus is saying, there's no way to honor the Father without honoring me. Now, you go bring this to a university, to a high school, to a junior high. It's probably at this point easier at a university than it is at a junior high or high school, or even a grade school. And you bring this, Neil McClendon says, in a world of cowards, truth is hate speech. This message Jesus offers is it won't play in Peoria, if you know that saying. If you don't, I think I've explained it maybe once before. For people who wanted to know if a theatrical performance would do well in the Midwest, they would take it to Peoria. If it did well in Peoria, it would do good throughout the Midwest. We learned something extra biblical today. So you're standing here, hearing this. Telling me I cannot honor the Heavenly Father without honoring you, Jesus? Most all of us in this room are believers. I get that. Um, this is what we offer people. There is no hope other than to honor the Son. And this is what we want for the world, the Son to be honored. John Piper says, missions exist because worship doesn't. And we want to tell people about Jesus because we want the spread of the worship of God to go about this globe. Honor the Son. Give glory to God. 
That's what you need most. And so we tell people about Jesus. Jesus says, if you don't honor me, you can't honor God. There's no other way to God but through honoring me. If he's not who he says he is, he's the most arrogant person to ever walk on the face of the earth. But if he is, then he deserves our honor and praise. So consider these claims. It's good for us to consider them again. Believer or not, is, is he God or is he a madman? Pick up stones to kill him? Scream, rage on the inside, or marvel at him and honor him? That's two responses that were given in verses 20 to 23. In verse 20 it says, greater works than these will he, do, will he show them so that you may marvel. And we have seen these greater works. He died. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. There were 500 witnesses. And so our options this morning are to marvel. Don't you love that he gave that as a response? To marvel? I mean, when's the last time you marveled? Jesus doing these things so that we would marvel. And then the other response is simply, we just saw it, is to honor him. Is to honor him. And we get an opportunity to do that. In a little bit, when we sing, when we receive communion, and we remember Jesus. So Jesus continues this conversation, kind of, kind of turns a corner, and then begins to make an appeal to the crowd. In verse 24, we see this. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It's like Jesus turns to this crowd, he's making all these claims and saying, If you will hear and you will believe, you will have eternal life. Not eternal life later, although that is there. You can have eternal life now. The possession of it, true life in this world, begins... Not at conception, not when the first cry is heard out of the mother's womb, although that is true, we believe physical life begins there. True life is beyond physical life, because the scriptures paint for us this reality that there are dead people walking everywhere. They're not alive. Jesus affirms what Michael Kelly preached on this last weekend. Jesus affirms that people are dead. They're dead. They're, they're, they might be breathing, but true life happens in Christ when we believe in Jesus by his grace. Billy Graham said this, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just change my address. I will be in the very presence of God. If you're in Christ... You may physically die, but there's, there's no death for you. This is a very instant move forward to the very presence of God. Christ returns, and then our bodies, souls come together, resurrected body forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Life now. And then he says in this verse, not only believe in him, but in verse 24, let me find my place. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus said, those who are, believe me, those who are in Christ, those who have eternal life, there is no judgment for them. For those of you in Christ, 
You don't come into judgment. There's no condemnation for you. Staggering. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. <laughs> this culture lived in a culture of condemnation. Pharisees standing on the street corner shaming others because they were more holy than you. Feeding off being better than you. And Jesus saying, not with me. No condemnation. And then Jesus teaches about this. What does this mean? But they have moved from death to life. And he expands and he helps us understand the last words in verse 24, but has passed from death to life. And in verses 25 through 27, he explains it for us. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. It's now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has authority, and he has been given authority him to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is teaching this truth, the spiritual dead humanity. Spiritually dead. You see, unfortunately, scholars want to put the Bible against itself, and I, I preached on this a little bit last week, but the Bible always interprets itself. There's such great continuity there and beauty, and it's, it's, it's wonderful. And what scholars want to do is they want to put Jesus and they want to put Paul against each other and say, Jesus is nice, Paul's mean. And it's like they, they, they're teaching the exact same thing. This is the Holy Writ. This is the Holy Spirit who's inspiring the very words of Jesus giving him words, and then the Holy Spirit who's also inspiring anything else that's written in the scriptures. It's all red letter. And here Jesus is teaching the exact same things that are taught in the epistles. You're dead. Humanity, watching world, you are spiritually dead and you need somebody to give you a resurrection. Humanity is in a truly hopeless state. The problem with humanity isn't that they're not educated, that they lack education or affirmation. The problem is they are spiritually dead. Michael Kelly said it, again quoting him yesterday, a corpse can't do anything. Something has to be done to it. For a corpse to move, somebody has to move it. I've yet to meet a corpse at a funeral. Jump up and out of there and say, I'm thirsty. Jesus is telling us the global problem, and he is tell telling us also the local problem here in Carbondale, here in Heron, Marion, Murfreesboro. The problem with our cities, with our neighbors, with our friends, isn't that they need a few moral points. The problem with them is they are spiritually dead. But praise God, Jesus here tells us that he raises the dead. And friends, you and I are evidence of the fact of God's benevolent care and love for sinners that he would bring us to life. Our eyes have been opened, our ears, spiritual ears have heard, our heart has been made alive, and we have moved from the position of spiritual deadness to spiritual life. Evidence in this room. They're listening in, leaning in, some agreeing, few I would say agreeing, most in the crowd probably enraged. It goes on, verse 28. We're about done. Verse 28, 
And we're going to do some explaining on these verses to help you out. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Come on, Jesus. Isn't that what the Pharisees are teaching? Good works. What is this? Those who have done good, those who have done bad. I'll just say this as clearly as I can. The works that Jesus is talking about here, this is not saving works, it's revealing works. It's revealing works, not saving works. Galatians chapter 5 helps us out, and I want to explain this a little bit. Turn there if you want, Galatians 5. We're going to just look at a couple things real quick. Galatians 5, famous passage about the fruit of the Spirit, where we're commanded to walk, in, walk by the Spirit to not gratify the desires of the flesh. Keep in mind, he's already talked about death to life. Okay? Already talked about those who are, have moved from death to life. And if you have been born again, moved from death to life, there's a fundamental difference in your nature, who you are inside of you. And Galatians 5 does a really good job of explaining these revealing works by way of describing the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 19 to 21, we hear this. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the truth of this passage. If those things define you, if you find yourself not doing simply one of these things, but doing these things plural, regularly, this is who you are, you do not know God. If you have no remorse or conviction from the Holy Spirit about these things, I mean, it's, it's diametri diametrically opposed to being in Christ. Because we, we're invited into, the believer is invited into a life of war. In some ways, it's easier to be a non-believer than it is to be a believer. A believer is not raging war within themselves. But the believer has this war raging within us. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. So those who are walking and living in the works of the flesh, they don't have that war. They just don't care. This is their life. And Galatians teaches us the same thing that John Chapter 5 teaches us, those who have done evil, they go to a resurrection of judgment. But it goes on to describe the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Let's just read it in verse 20 to 22 to 24. But the fruit of the Spirit, singular fruit, things are collective. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in someone's life. Now, if you're a believer, we are becoming and longing 
longing to bear more fruit. We're in a war inside. It's a battle. Anybody natural, naturally just walking in the fruit of the Spirit every day? Just wake up every day and just... Have a bad day at work and... When your mind begins to wander, the battle starts. <sighs> the check of the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit at work in us. And by God's grace, we are becoming good. We are counted fully righteous. And now the God of the universe is actually transforming us from one degree of glory to another. We are doing, by God's grace, less bad things than we were before. And becoming more Christ-like than we were. But fruit inspection can get quite weary. I want you to bring you as we end this, because Jesus is absolutely right. There will be a resurrection of life and death. But as we begin to think about fruit, doing good works, I want you to consider, is there a war within? Is there a war within? You're the Lord's. Because if there wasn't a war within, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't be the Lord's. It's there because the Holy Spirit's working these things in you. But there's a higher level of assurance than simply the war inside of you. We need better works for a better assurance. And there is a higher assurance even in the book of Galatians. And I want to call you to, to bring your mind to the very work of Jesus. Because Jesus, in his preaching and teaching, is preparing us for when the Holy Spirit would descend and connect the dots of his complete working. So even the apostles, in the gospel of, in, in Acts chapter 11, verse 17, Peter says, And we too, when we heard... When the Spirit came upon us, we too, they too believed as we did in the beginning. Peter, the Apostle Peter, in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, is very confused about the work of Jesus still. He asked Jesus, are you, are you now going to restore your kingdom? He's still thinking physical kingdom. Acts 2 happens and he starts preaching Jesus the substitute for sinners. Things come together for him. He understands with greater clarity. And Jesus is prepping people for what he will do on the cross and in the resurrection, the ascension, and then the descension of the Holy Spirit. He's preparing people. And now we can see things with greater clarity than the crowd could that day. The crowd is there, and we have an advantage over the crowd. We, we can see cl more clearly than they could that he is the Messiah. That he is who he says he is. And if he is, he was who he says he was, is who he says he is. There is a higher assurance. And I want to call you to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. We'll start in 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law... So as we begin this fruit inspection, don't make the mistake of thinking, oh my gosh, today was bad, the fruit's not there, I haven't raged today or felt bad about my sin, oh my gosh, I'll get to that day. 
And it'll be resurrection of judgment for me. Don't go there. There's a higher assurance for your bad days. And friends, there's higher assurance for your bad moments within a day. Because this goes on, yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Him, and not by works in the law, because by, no, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Here's the truth, friends. Because of Jesus' perfect life, your, highest, your higher assurance than even your own fruit inspection of the Spirit working in you is to look to Christ to look to Christ who fulfilled the law on your behalf, who bore every fruit of the Spirit for you. He walked with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control every moment of every day. And friends, that fruit, the fruit of walking in step with the Spirit is given to us and counted as our very fruit and so one day we will be eternally rewarded with a reward beyond measure, a measure that's scaled throughout the entire future of everything that is because of what Christ did for us. So as we inspect our fruit, let's go beyond even the fruit within us and look at the very fruit of Christ for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. Hopefully, as we considered your claim, standing around, just listening to you, first century Jerusalem, the dust rises from the air, from the crowd. We hear your claims. And, and God, by your grace, you have worked in us in such a way where we have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you are giving us life in his name. We thank you for that. God, we know that it's true that those who reject these claims of Christ, they shall die and be condemned. But those who respond to these claims of Jesus are born again to eternal life. So God, grant repentance. Grant people to be born again. That they would breathe and cry out in repentance and faith. We have friends and neighbors that need this. And help us take this message that they would hear and believe. Even now we have this opportunity to respond. In the way that Jesus opened up for us, we can marvel right now and we can honor the Son right now. Help us to do this. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. And for the hope of even now marveling and honoring you. Amen. Let's worship.